welcome to PCS Reads. I'm Laura Given. On this episode, we welcome author Heather Bauman. I'm Heather Bauman. I'm the author of A Crack in the Sea. Um, I write middle grade historical fantasy like A Crack in the Sea, and I also write chapter books. Crack in the Sea is made up of three stories about brothers and sisters. One about Venus and Swimmer who escape a slave ship in 1781. And then there's Kinchin and her brother Pip who is kidnapped by the Raft King. And finally, Tan and Song who set out in a small boat to escape post-war Vietnam in 1978. Their stories mix and swirl together, all connected by a portal in the ocean, a crack in the sea, to another world called the Second World. A Crack in the Sea is kind of a hard book to describe because there's several plots in it and there's a lot of characters. But I would say that basically all of the stories have to do with characters who are forced to leave the home that that is that they love, their own home, and are forced to go on journeys for different reasons. And it's set mostly in the second world, which has magical properties, and some of the kids have magical powers. A lot of them meet up with each other. And there's sea monsters. You can't go wrong. I know, you can't go wrong with sea monsters. I didn't really know what story I was telling when I started. I had written a book already set in that world. The remarkable and very true story of Lucy and Snowcap is set in that same world. And I really liked that world. And I started thinking about writing another story in that world, um, but I didn't want to set it on that same island. So I started thinking about what else could be in that world. And I came up with this image of this giant raft and people on this giant raft, you know, like a movable nation, which I thought was a really cool idea. And then at the same time, I was researching, I'm a college professor as well, and I was researching for a class that I was teaching where we were going to read a narrative by Olaude Equiano, who was enslaved in the late 1700s, purchased his freedom and wrote a memoir about it, kind of an autobiography. One of the things he touches on is a particular case with a ship called the Zong. And I was just reading some background material on the Zong, and it struck me as something that was that I wanted to know more about. And so I started researching that more, and that eventually became part of the story as well. But the book really started with those two things, the image of the raft and the story of the Zong. And I really didn't know where it was going to go. I kept playing with other different plots and different sort of scenarios. And I had several really different drafts of the book. It wasn't originally a story about forced immigration or about people being refugees or being, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily about that when I started. Two things really were weird about world building for me in this one. One is that I had to, for the sake of a crack in the sea, make the ocean not salt water. Because of things that happen in there, the ocean can't be salty. And so in the first book, I hadn't really talked about the ocean very much, but 
I had been imagining it as a salty ocean. So it really made me kind of go back and rethink that, like what sort of fish would live there? And I'm writing a third book set in that same world. And I have been doing a lot of research on freshwater fish, including freshwater dolphins, which I didn't even know were a thing until I started researching them. They're pink. They're pink dolphins. They're really, really adorable. And they live in the Amazon River. Just changing the water changed so many things in that world for me because it also means then that raft world i mean one of the reasons the water had to be fresh is raft world has to be able to live on it and they need that water to live on so it has to be fresh water otherwise that world can't really exist they don't have wells you know (laughs) um but it it just changed the whole world because now you can travel on water and you can stay out in a boat for literally months at a time or on a giant raft you know you don't have to get to land in any sort of amount of time. And then the other thing that was really different is the first book was written by someone. Much of that book, if not all of that book, is is written by one of the characters. Um, And he doesn't know he's in a different world. So he's continually confused by it. He thinks he's just landed on an island off the coast of North America. So there were a lot of things I didn't have to explain because none of the characters in that book understood what was going on. Now I think I would want to give more of a clue to readers that they were actually in a different world in that book. At the time I was like, ha ha ha, no one knows. (laughs) Hi, my name is Natalie. I would like to know why you decided to use your initials for your author name. Oh, that's a good question. Um, There's a long history of that, men and women using initials for their author name. There's an especially long history of women using their initials because long time ago, of course, it was not considered good for women to write books and people didn't want to read books by women. So they would often publish under initials in order to be more kind of gender neutral or under fake names. So like George Eliot, her name wasn't actually George, it was Marianne. (laughs) But she published as George Eliot so that people would buy and read her books. Um, This is in the 1800s. So anyway, so there's that long history. But also, um, I wasn't really thinking of that. I don't think I have to disguise my gender. Plus, you know, I'm pretty easy to find on the Internet. So it's not like I can hide. But it did, you know, there's this long history of people using initials. So it seemed like an okay thing to do. J.K. Rowling did it. So I can do it. Uh, But also... Um, I had published some scholarly work under my name, um, stuff about early American literature, for example, as Heather Bauman. And so I kind of wanted to keep those identities separate, the scholarly work versus the fiction. So I went with my initials for the other nun. I love multi-plotted books and my first book was a double plotted book and I thought well how can I how can I do more Uh, so (laughs) I went with more plots in this one Uh, but I I really do love multi-plotted books and one of the reasons I love them is that they allow you to to tell more than one story and to kind of bounce the stories off of each other so you can have stories that are not quite the same I mean, being enslaved and forced to leave your home is quite different than being a refugee and forced to leave your home, right? But Or being kidnapped and forced to leave your home, um, all three of which are stories that appear in the book. 
but there's some interesting resonances when you put them next to each other. Interesting similarities, interesting differences that help you to think about what it means to be forced to leave your home in some way. So I really love multiple plots for that reason. The Zong piece was always there from the beginning, so Venus was always there. She's the only character really who hasn't changed over the course of the novel, not, not greatly anyway. She's in the finished book almost the same way she appeared when I first wrote her. And she was always the thread that kept we kept coming back to and kept coming back to. And I knew I always wanted to end the book with her. So that was always there. The other pieces were, <laughs> it was like building a building and tearing it down and building it, tearing it down. Like I just kept moving things around and coming up with different pieces too. I mean, at one point there was a whole plot that had to do with the 1973 gas crisis, which, yeah, it makes no sense at all when you know the finished work. <laughs> but I didn't know where the story was going when I drafted that. So I wrote this whole, I don't know, 50, 60 page subplot that was sort of threaded through about this kid, you know, during the 1973 gas crisis, kind of coming through the portal and what happens with this kid. And then you know, my critique group said, what is this story doing here? It has nothing to do with the rest of the book. And I was like, well, it's about people coming through a portal and about water. And they said, but it's not about being forced to leave your home. And I was like, oh, is that what my book is about? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> you, you sort of, you draft without really knowing where it's going sometimes. When I read the final version, it has all these other stories kind of piled on top of it in my head. The narrator was always there. I really like omniscient voice. So omniscient voice is that, you know, sort of godlike narrator who knows the whole story and can explain things and set it in context. And I, I love those kind of stories. They're kind of old fashioned at heart because, you know, omniscient voice was really popular in the 19th century and even in the 18th century. Um, and it's less popular now. But another really great omniscient voice story is Kate DiCamillo's The Tale of Despero. And I, I just love the way that voice comes in. And I started thinking about why she would have used it in that book, because that's also a multi-plotted book, and it's aimed at pretty young readers, um, younger than my book. And so it's aimed at readers who really haven't read a lot of multi-plotted books. So by the time people get up to my book, I hope they've read some multi-plotted books, but still mine is going to be a challenge because there's so many moving parts um, and and so many stories that I'm, I'm telling part of a story and then I'm leaving it for a while and then I'm coming back to it later. And I think the way that an omniscient narrator can be really helpful there is it can kind of guide the reader through that story. Kate Camillo does that brilliantly in The Tale of Despero. Um, if you've read that book, she starts out with the story of the mouse, and then she leaves it for like 90 pages. And then she comes back and the narrator says, you have not forgotten about the little mouse, have you? <laughs> you know, but this, this idea that the narrator can kind of remind you of things and kind of put some signposts down for you. And I wanted a narrator to do that because I thought this book would be unduly challenging without it. Like, why do that to a reader? <laughs> I want them to enjoy the book. So I want the narrator to kind of help guide them through a plot that could be really tricky otherwise.
had no idea that they were going to have interior art for the book. Although when my editor bought the book, it was shortly after that, that she said there was going to be some interior art. And she thought it would be, the book was in nine sections. So she thought there would be one piece of art for each section. The art director said, why don't you just make some suggestions for what you think would be good for each section, like kind of pull out what you think would be illustratable. So I wrote some notes and ideas, but you know, the contact between the author and the artist is really minimal. And I, I also would like it that way because I'm not an artist. I want the artist to have absolutely free reign because they're going to come up with a better idea than I would about what's illustratable. Um, so I sent some suggestions off, but then it ended up being more art than that, which is awesome. It wasn't just one per section. And Yuko Shimizu, the artist, is amazing. And also, just some of the things she did, I, I saw the art and I had these sort of like, duh moments for myself, because I had sent over suggestions that had to do with like important actions in the story. And she did illustrate some of those, but what she really ended up illustrating mostly was like, what does the world look like? So there was, there's an illustration of Raft World, and I was like, oh, I never even thought to suggest you should illustrate Raft World, but of course there should be a picture of Raft World, you know? And I never thought to say there should be a picture of the Kraken, but of course there should be a picture of the Kraken, you know, where you just get a sense of what they look like. So it was really eye-opening for me to see what she wanted to put on the page, and I think she chose perfectly every time. There's a, there's a Minnesota author named Phyllis Root who, I don't remember if she was quoting someone or if she was saying this herself, but she said in a talk I heard her give once, we are made up of dust and stories. And I've always remembered that. It's, you know, it's the stories that we tell ourselves and that we hear from other people about ourselves that make us who we are. So if you think about, you know, the stories that your family says about you, you're really musical or you're really athletic or you're really clumsy. You know, those stories are what kind of form you into the person you are. And that's true on a bigger scale too. The stories we tell ourselves as a culture, the stories that we embrace as a nation, as a culture, are what make us who we are, which is why we're so, you know, concerned. I hope we're all concerned as a culture about real stories versus not real stories in the news, because it's really important that we find true stories you know, and that we understand these stories because they are what make us who we are. And whoever controls those stories controls who we become. So I, I think we can't underestimate how important stories are for just for forming us into who we are. I'm going to be reading from chapter three of the book. And this is one of the three storylines in here, and it's about a brother and a sister, Kinchin and Pip. Kinchin is really worried about her brother, her little brother, Pip, because she doesn't think he's very capable of things. This is, again, it's getting at the power of stories, right? The story that she has about her brother is that he's not very good with people, he's not very capable, he can't take care of himself. Pip has actually some gifts and that he's sort of proud of, and one of the special gifts he has is that he can talk with fish. Kinchin is suspicious of this gift. She doesn't really value it, but it is actually kind of a cool thing. So he gets asked to go and show this gift off to the visiting king of Raftworld, and he goes to do that. And this is the, the story of what he's doing. 
So this is chapter three. Pip floated face down. He made sure to float at the surface because he knew the Raft King wanted to see him, to see at least some of what he was doing. And anyway, Pip couldn't sink more than 10 or 12 feet without his head shaking, like most people, he assumed, except that most people had to come up for air, and he didn't. He also stayed at the surface because, just a little bit, he wanted to show off. After all, his ability with sea creatures was the only interesting thing about him, the only thing he was especially good at. Kinchin, always protecting him, kept him away from people, so he'd never before had an audience, and it felt good to have an audience when he was doing something right. He hung motionless in the water and sent out thoughts. For talking to fish, th thinking wasn't enough. You had to think with direction. Otherwise, they couldn't hear anything you said. It had taken him time to figure that out. Talking with fish wasn't just something you did, no matter what people seemed to think. It might be a gift, but it wasn't simply given. He'd had to practice it. His thoughts flowed outward in rings. Hello? Who's there? Eventually the fish began to arrive, returning the greeting and nudging one another as they congregated below him. Pip recognized some of them, those who swam back and forth from the bay near his house to this protected inland pond. Some of these fish he'd never seen before, but they'd all heard of him. Their thoughts swirled around him. The boy, the human who can talk. The fish jostled in the water. As the sea creatures gathered, Pip studied them so he'd recognize them the next time he saw them. Fish were easy. They all looked like themselves, individual and special with their own markings and their own movements and their own quick way of flashing thoughts and their own sparkle. Not like people, who, no matter how long Pip studied them, all looked the same to him. He could tell people apart by approximate age and size and length of hair and body shape and sometimes by skin tone if they were far enough off the medium brown norm. But stand two average kids next to each other, or two women, or two old men, and it was over. Lucky for him, Ren was so pale. Lucky, too, that Kinchin bleached the stripe in her hair for him. It was always a relief to see that hair and know that his recognizing work was done. One of the fish he knew twitched upward to him, and Pip reached down to stroke her smooth, cool back. She was a young bass who called herself Flicker. We arrive here for a super-secret meeting of fishy minds, and we still can't escape you. She nipped his hand gently as she thought at him, and he grinned. I'm a fish spy, it's true. Why the visit? Does this have to do with the giant raft? Flicker threaded herself through his dangling legs, not unlike a cat. The other fish shivered into a pack, and he could hear their thoughts, wondering why he had come to the pond. No, nothing is wrong. At least I don't think so. The raft king, the human in charge of the giant raft, he thought it was interesting that I could talk to you all, and he wanted to see it. Pip struggled to keep his thoughts from sounding smug or bragging. He wanted to see me talk to fish. Why? asked a minnow, and all the minnows echoed, Why? 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 Their thin, wavery thoughts flashed through the water together. The bass's thoughts, deep and clear, drove through the clatter. Do the humans need something from us? What do they want? I don't know. There must be something the Raft King wanted beyond just a simple show of Pip's gift, but Pip didn't know what it was, and he realized now he'd been so excited to show his gift, so thrilled to be asked, that he hadn't wondered what else the Raft King might want. I'll find out when I go back up. Meanwhile, fine, we'll do a trick for your little human friends. If Fish could roll their eyes, Flicker would be doing it now. Her thoughts had that fake, grumpy quality to them that Pip adored about her. What do you want? Something happy and impressive. Could you... Could you all jump at the same time into the air?
Look for Crack in the Sea at your local bookstore or library, or check it out from the PCS Library this fall. Here is Heather Bauman and a few PCS readers with more books you might enjoy. I had a couple recommendations. Um, one, if you want adventure stories, I would recommend Kecklin Magoon's book. It's, it's actually a series of three books called Shadows of Sherwood, and it's a retelling of the Robin Hood story, but really different. Um, and it's, it's a really cool adventure story. If you like um, storytelling and magical stories, I would recommend Grace Lynn's book, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. There's also a sequel to it. Uh, or another book in that a companion book and then there's an adventure story series set in Minnesota which maybe you've heard of by Ann Ursu called the Kronos Chronicles and it's it's actually set in the Twin Cities and it's about um, what if the Greek gods were real and something bad is happening with them and I have to say the door to Hades is set in the perfect spot in Minnesota. So if you think, where would should the door to Hades be in the Twin Cities? It is in exactly the right spot in that book. Um, so that's a cool adventure story too, with some uh, great magic in it. And then the last one I recommend, just because it's so fun, is a book by James Thurber, who's um, he's been dead a long time. It's an old book called The Thirteen Clocks. That's kind of maybe a younger book, but it's really fun and it's fun to read out loud. Hi, this is Molly and Natalie. We would like to recommend Big Game by Stuart Gibbs. It is about a rhino that is in danger, and Teddy Fitzroy is again on the case. We rate it a lot of stars. If you like Big Game, you may also like Pandemonium. Also by Stuart Gibbs. Hi, my name is Veronica, and I would like to recommend Dinosaur Boy by Corey Putman Oaks. It's about a boy that has a dinosaur tail and plates. I liked it because it's ex exciting and fun. If you like action, then I think you'd like Dinosaur Boy by Corey Putman Oaks. That's all for this episode of PCS Reads. Until next time, happy summer, happy reading. <laughs>